The paperwork started back then, and it's still not over. We are in March of 2019. It's, it's frustrating to say the least. And I feel with every international graduate, and even U.S. graduates, sometimes your circumstances are way beyond you, and you just have to power through. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week is part two of two of our discussion of the practice of anesthesia internationally. And this week I talked to Dr. Wael Sassou, who is coming from Lebanon, but he's actually right now doing a residency at Detroit Medical Center. He has the interesting story of serving as an attending internationally for a few years, but really desiring to come to the States and be in an attending here. And so he talks a lot about the difficulties and challenges that he and his wife experienced as they came to the States from Lebanon, what it's been like to adjust to the American ACGME system, uh, and, and everything that they've experienced culturally, personally, and professionally. So really excited to speak this week with Dr. Wael Sassou. Hey, it's Justin here. I'm pleased to introduce to you our guest this week, Dr. Wael Sassou. Wael brings us unique perspectives about medicine across international borders. He is an anesthesiologist from Lebanon, where he completed his residency at American University of Beirut and was an attending anesthesiologist there for several years. Eventually, he came to the United States where he did several research fellowships with the Cleveland Clinic and is now working his way through another anesthesia residency at the Detroit Medical Center. So I'm really excited to speak with him about practicing anesthesia internationally and what it's like to transition to practice in the U.S. and what the medical system like is here versus abroad. Well, El, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, uh, I always enjoy digging through the CV to try to find something interesting to start with. And I, <laughs> I happen to notice that you, uh, you've done a little bit of jiu-jitsu. I have. So I'd, I'd love to hear about what your experience with that martial art has been like. Um, that's an interesting way to start this. My, uh, my uncle used to be a martial artist. He, um, he was a Taekwondo black belt holder. And I grew up sort of in the mentality that I like martial arts. I like to practice, not just, you know, watch the movies like every other kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had some training growing up. And then as I got to college, there was this jujitsu club that I was immediately interested in. I joined without a previous experience, but then it turned out to be one of my favorite sports at the time. Oh, that's great. Unfortunately, it's a little physical, so it was. it's not something you'd keep doing for a long time if you're not planning to do it professionally. So I, I had to stop okay. by the time I got to medical school. figured okay. my personal safety might be a little bit more important. <laughs> cool. Oh, that's great. So how does, just out of curiosity, how's jujitsu distinguished from, like, you know, one of the more, because um, I, I think it's more like grappling and, like, submission holds and stuff, right, rather than striking. Is that right? It is actually both. It's um, sort of a mixed martial art with striking, standing positions, ground positions, grapples. If you watch UFC, this is as close as I can describe it. It's uh, right. it's basically an organized street fight. But okay, cool. it's, it's so versatile, and it's so, it has so much potential for somebody who likes this yeah. that i immediately found myself attracted to it yeah and i'll tell you what there's there's probably times at which if you're you know in the or or you know on a night shift and something happens where some guy comes in off the street or something you never know (laughs) when you're going to need a skill set like that right i hope i never have to use it Uh, i do too 
Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, Lael, and you know what it was like growing up in Lebanon, and you know your family and, and your hometown and all of that. I um, grew up in a small town called Haspaya. Uh, shout out to anybody from there who's listening. Uh, it's in the southeast area of Lebanon. It's um, it's a nice, cozy, quiet town. It's one of the larger towns compared to other towns in Lebanon, but it's it's small by by any other means. Uh, so it, it had this feeling of being a cozy kind of familial town. You walk on the street, you know. 90% of people that pass by you. Hmm. Both my parents were in uh, active service with the Lebanese Red Cross. So I kind of grew up in the mindset of healthcare, And um, it, it was sort of a, a time of war or conflict or political unrest, which mm-hmm. is not unusual for Lebanon. So I grew up sort of seeing my parents do what they do. They basically volunteered because they both had full-time jobs as teachers. Wow. Okay. And uh, as a toddler, I had my, my own Red Cross uniform, and I still have oh, a picture wow. of it. It's uh, one of my more fond memories. Oh, wow. But then as I grew older, went to college and everything, I wasn't precisely planning to become a doctor. However, things sort of worked out that way. I did a chemistry major back in college, and I was doing a minor in computer science, and I had my plans to do something with that, combining both. At the time, and this makes me sound a little older, it wasn't that <laughs> long ago, but at the time, it wasn't a very popular option to you know, combine seemingly unrelated majors. I was always interested in computers, and I wanted to do something like biomedical informatics or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. And those things were not available for me over there. And looking at my future prospects, um, I sort of decided that medicine would be a better option. My parents had been kind of nagging me to become a doctor for a while, and I didn't want to. But it it, it worked out that way. And um, during my last semester of my chemistry undergrad, I decided to become a, a physician. So I had to take all these other requirements and the prerequisites for medicine. And it was just a, such a crunch that I didn't even have a summer break that year in order to actually be able to sit for the MCATs, make it into med school of that year so I, so I don't lose a year. Yeah. So that, that's how I ended up in medicine. And then going through medicine, you know, you, you go through rotations and you see how other residents live and, and what kind of lifestyle the attendings would have. And anesthesia was just the one thing that I was convinced I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, as you know, as your senior year, you know, finishing up chemistry, was there like a, a catalytic moment where you're like, okay, I there was something that happened where I want to do medicine, or was it kind of a gradual realization that uh, you know it kind of makes sense because I'm already doing chemistry and like <laughs> pharmacology is kind of right there, and it's just one thing led to another. I actually, I was so confused as to what I was planning to do, and I didn't really have a clear idea of what my future should be like. So I had an appointment with my advisor. And he sat down with me and he was explaining what I could do after chemistry. And basically, given the opportunities I had over there, it was either get a master's degree, do something in education or get a Ph.D., work in a lab, travel abroad, do something of the sort. And I kept going through these options. And then he just casually mentioned, well, you could also do medicine. And it just went on. It wasn't it wasn't something that he really stressed. And out of everything he mentioned, doing medicine was probably the most obvious option, just because I was looking at my prospects for the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew it was going to be tough, but little did I know. It was not. Yeah. It, was, it was a pretty long journey. But then if you like what you're doing, 
it's never easy. But then once once you get it, and once you do it, it's uh, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell me about you know your time at medical school. So that was in in Beirut. Is that, that right? That was in Beirut. Yeah. And, and so what was what's the medical program there like? And do you have a sense? Obviously, you know you, you didn't do any medical school here in the states, but do you have a, a sense for kind of how it compares or the similarities and differences? I believe it's similar. It's an American university, so it follows an American system mostly. A medical school is just like medical school here. Okay. You study twenty six hours a day and. You, yeah. you sit for exams, and, and that's that's all you do, basically. Transitioning from medical school into residency was also similar to what I've I've heard my, my friends here say about what they go through. The only, the one major difference I can tell is, and that's a, I would say that's one thing that I experienced that I wouldn't have experienced here, is that Lebanon has a dual influence. It has American influence, and it has European influence. So... And it, it sort of seeps into medicine where if a medication gets approved in Europe, then we automatically have access to it much, much earlier than the U.S. would have because the FDA process takes a little bit longer. Uh, mm-hmm. Pharmaceuticals want to make sure that the international market is good for them before they come into the U.S. because it's a big gamble for them. So going through residency, I had the chance to work with some medications and some devices that are just making it into the market now here in the US. And it's it's a bit of a strange feeling because right now we we talk about a medication called Sugamedex, which is basically the revolutionary neuromuscular blocker reversal agent, which works pretty fast and it has it has its own advantages. I was using Sugamedex when I was in my residency in Lebanon. So that was back in 2010. So nine years ago, I was using it routinely, and I just started using it here last year. And it's, wow. it's the new thing, and the research is, is geared towards it. So hmm. from that perspective, and I've used devices back then that have still not made it to the market here. Hmm. So in that sense, it is something that I consider a very valuable experience. The downside is, I mean, Lebanon is a third world country, so your resources are a little more limited. Your training in certain things is a little outdated, but in others, it's very up-to-date. So th- there's a mix of this and that. But overall, I, I do not regret any of my experiences back there. They've all uh, helped make me form a better character when it comes to uh, medicine and anesthesia specifically. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's an interesting dichotomy of you know being, it sounds like, more resource-constrained, but also having this... Because it sounds like there's less of a regulatory hurdle, i.e. the FDA isn't there, you know, put it, making everything take forever, that, that you had access to things earlier on. Is that is that kind of the way it is in Europe, too, that things are a little easier to get to market rather than here in the States? Is that kind of the European influence? I'm not sure if that's a global statement that we can make, but a lot of the pharmaceuticals, a lot of the medical device companies come from Europe. Most of them have ideas or from, or from uh, anywhere else internationally. So I would imagine that it would be easier for them to put a product in the market there uh, before it makes it here. And when I was using something, say, nine or ten years ago, it must have been in production for the decade before that. Right. Uh, and that was when companies were a little more focused on their own local markets. Mm-hmm. By now, most of these major names are international. So now the, the, the research and development happens everywhere, including the U.S. So sometimes 
you start with something and you start marketing it from the U.S. and then expand it internationally. But then at the time, I figured it was a little bit easier just because some of those companies uh, originated from from Europe. Yeah, makes sense. So I know uh, you mentioned that your wife is a, a nurse who's done cardio ICU for some time. Did you? I'm curious. Did you meet her during this period? I uh, I actually met her when I was a med student, and she was a nursing student. Okay. And um, it was a coincidence that we that we met, but if you ever believe in love at first sight, that was it. Uh, she just <laughs> what, happened. What was the circumstance? Well, I was a medical student, so I studied all day, every day, of course. And uh, I was sitting on a table with a friend of mine, and that stranger at the time just happened to pass by with mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of her friends. And for some reason, it was just that I thought that, well, this is somebody I would really like to meet. And it's a long story, but I had to have <laughs> my friends help. I had to have her friends help. Yeah. And everybody kind of collaborated to make it happen. And it just happened. <laughs> oh, that's great. It takes a village sometimes. It, it took a village. Yeah, that's I, I know a little something about that, too. So that's <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, OK, so you were a med student. And then so as far as the transition from, you know, being a med student to residency, obviously here in the States, we just had this thing that's basically a national holiday for the med students called Match Day, you where, you, you know, you do your rank list and you apply to a bunch of different places and you find out where you match. What is that? What's that process like in Lebanon? A little less nerve wracking than uh, and a little less expensive, I might add. Okay. <laughs> um, you basically do rotations, uh, you meet program directors, you meet other faculty from other specialties. Everybody has their own version of a, uh, an assessment that they make on all the medical students. Mm -hmm. And you sort of submit your preferences to them and then you, you get in touch with them and you tell them, for example, I told anesthesia I'm interested in becoming a resident with anesthesia. And there's a date range where People can send you something which resembles offers, basically telling them, mm -hmm. telling you that, okay, so we're interested in having you join us for the residency program. And then you go, you evaluate all of those, and then you decide what you want to do, and then you end up signing a contract. It's not an automated system like the match right. system here. Yeah, okay. You don't have to spend that much money to do it. It's, it's sort of, um, especially if you're still in the same institution where you're applying to become a resident. You already have contact with these individuals, so it's right. uh, it's less formal in a sense. Okay, so I'm curious. You know, you, you alluded a little bit, but what was how was the anesthesia residency experience for you? And you know, what's the you know as far as the functioning in the hospital? How does the role of the resident in a hospital in Beirut differ from what you're experiencing right now here in Detroit? It's very similar, and um, obviously, the fact that I'm going through it twice makes you kind of notice things that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Yeah. Uh, thinking back, I can tell that the life was very similar to the life I'm having right now. Hmm. Same structure, same system. Uh, the one difference I can tell is that, at least where I am right now, anesthesia is a three-year residency preceded by one year of, say, a transitional year or a, mm -hmm. um, internal medicine year or something like that. In Lebanon, at my center, it was a four-year residency program where you start PGY one year as an anesthesia resident, and then you just go up the ranks uh, okay. to PGY four. Other than that, it's the same structure. You have call days where you have one resident from every year that's present in-house. Uh, you have attendings like we do here. We did not have CRNAs. We did not have anesthesia aides. 
uh, anesthesia assistants. Uh, we had mm. anesthesia techs who helped us with the equipment, with starting a case, with ending a case. So what about uh, like fellowships? Is it, is it kind of a similar structure where you have the opportunity for additional specialization for like a one or one year segment for, for something like that? Uh, when I was doing my residency, we had a couple of fellowship options, uh, certainly not as extensive as uh, we have here. The concept is the same, but uh, the number of options was less. And uh, being a smaller program, uh, they could afford to accept less fellows per year. It was mostly um, cardiovascular anesthesia. Okay. And they were working on obstetric anesthesia at the time. Okay. A lot of the residents who wished to work in that same center would graduate, go do a fellowship abroad, and then come back as, uh, as attendings, as faculty. So then you wrapped up um, residency and, and became an attending. So talk a little bit about kind of what that transition was like. That was an interesting transition. I, um, growing up in a smaller town, when I left for college, because college was in Beirut and my town was uh, a couple of hours away, mm-hmm. um, I had to move and, and you know, rent and, and live there, basically. And uh, doing, um, being in medicine means you study a lot, so you don't get the chance to go back to your hometown quite often. Right. Uh, your weekends are mostly, you're either in the hospital or you're studying for something, you're just trying to catch up on your sleep. So when I finished, I had in mind a plan that I should go back, you know, live a little bit uh, in my community, mm-hmm. try to provide some of my expertise to the community because we had a one rural hospital in the area and uh, I wanted to be part of that. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to decide financially. So that was more of a lower income kind of work. And then mm-hmm. for the bulk of my time, I had a position in another community hospital, which was hours away. So I kind of split my time between working in my main hospital and then going back to my hometown and covering weekends and helping with the ICU, with the OR and, and uh, that sort of thing. And that, that, was, that was an enlightening experience because where I trained, it was an American system. It was a major center. It, you had a lot of things available by the standards of the country. Yeah. Uh, where I worked were two community hospitals that were really limited on resources. So you, you learn to work around some of the things and uh, you learn to work by yourself because I didn't even have anesthesia text there. Mm. So as an attending, I was basically in the OR by myself doing all of these cases. And they weren't the, the very high equity cases, granted. But still, you're putting somebody to sleep and it's a major responsibility. But it teaches you things. It, it helps you grow. It helps you develop your uh, your character, your personality, your uh, your medical fortitude, basically. It, it enhances it so much when, when you're forced into a situation like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, your wife is still a nurse. What's she doing at this time while you're kind of going back and forth between these two community hospitals? So the one community hospital where uh, I had my main job, it was a Monday to Friday, sort of 24 hours a day on call kind of position. Okay. Because I was the only full-time anesthesiologist there. And their operating wow. rooms, yeah, their, their operating uh, rooms were limited. So there, there were only two rooms. So the surgery department was basically surgery and anesthesia. And mm-hmm. I was the only full-timer there. And mm-hmm. we had surgeons come in and do cases every now and then, depending on the day of the week. So I, I took over that part of the hospital, sort of tried to help. It was a new hospital, so I tried to help them start it from the ground up, get the necessary equipment. And uh, my wife, who was working as a cardiovascular intensive care unit nurse at the American University of Beirut at the time, once we got married, 
we wanted to you know live in the same house mm-hmm. so she moved with me to my full-time job okay and she assumed the um, uh, a nursing directorship basically in, in the hospital where she she took over the nursing staff she uh, tried to organize the the staff's ranks and uh, you know deal with the with the with that part of, mm-hmm. of the hospital that's great it sounds like you both really engaged uh, very quickly in leadership roles in ways that a, a newer organization like a new hospital in a rural area I'm sure really benefited from we did we did it's a it's a headache but it's also it's also something we're, we're grateful for because you get this feeling of achievement you get this feeling of what I'm doing right now is making a big difference in a, in a sort of a large community so with all the headaches we're we're still happy that we did it yeah. That's that's excellent, um, and that's one thing I appreciate about a lot of my friends in the medical community is it's so mission driven. Um, it is that you know hearing stories like that are not actually that rare, just because it medicine tends to attract a lot of the types of people that are made out of that stuff that that are they just want to give. I'm I'm sure and, I'm sure, and I really appreciate that. Um, so that's that's an interesting you know that it drew you to you know near your hometown this this desire to kind of build this be a meaningful contributor to this new medical center. But at some point you started to think, well, maybe I want to continue my career development uh, further than beyond the borders of, of this town. So talk to me about how that transition happened for you and your wife and, and what that looked like. That's, uh, that's exactly what happened. Getting into jobs like these, while they may be fruitful in a way that what you're doing is making a difference, but you end up doing sort of the same thing or you're you're staying in the same realm of things the whole time being in a community hospital means you're not in an academic center you don't have a lot of um, opportunities to grow as an academic Mm -hmm. physician you don't get a lot of research opportunities the the structure is just not there and it's sort of like private practice and in a sense it is it's just in a hospital setting yeah so at, at one point i decided that i still have a few things to offer and i would still like to grow academically and uh, intellectually. So I had to make a decision whether to go back to my training center and then get a job there mm-hmm. or make a move that's slightly bigger. Yeah, I would say considerably bigger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, and of course, these decisions you don't make on your own. So right. my wife and I sat down and discussed it at length over months and she she had spent part of her life here in the U.S. and was not opposed to the idea of coming back here. Okay. Especially that wherever we lived in Lebanon, we felt that at some point this is not the ideal scenario for us mm-hmm. because of the political unrest, because of the every now and then there's always something going on. And uh, it just wasn't ideal for a new couple trying to start a family and, and get stability. Right. It is a beautiful country. We we miss every day we spent there. But at some point, you just have to think, this is the golden time for me to grow a little more. So I should mm-hmm. do that. And then if I decide to go back and live there on the longer term, then I can do that. Mm-hmm. So we made we made the decision, and, and it was a difficult one, but we made the decision to, to come to the U.S. And then also little did we know how difficult that transition would be because you expect things to happen and things to be a problem but then you can never think of everything that can happen mm-hmm. and as a foreign graduate applying to a position here i technically cannot function as an attending 
in the U.S. without right. having an American board. Right. And my residency doesn't count because it's not ACGME accredited. It's an international, it's, it's American, but it's an international uh, program. So I had to do residency again. And you would know that getting into residency and anesthesia is already difficult for yeah. somebody who's, who's been doing medical school at the same center where they want to apply. Being an international graduate made it, gave it so many more layers of difficulty. Mm-hmm. So I had to do something else in the meantime in order to enhance my CV, make myself more appealing so that somebody would actually decide to bring in an international graduate rather than accept somebody who's in the U.S. And that carries a lot of significance because there's a visa involved, there's a right. status restraints and, and uh, a lot of those things. Yeah, so talk to us about that that process. So, you know, the, the visa process and, and finding somewhere here vocationally where you can do, you know, like a research fellowship, I think, to, to be able to make connections and start to open the door to start those yeah. conversations for, for the residency program. How, how did that work for you? Being on a visa is limiting in many ways because you're not free to decide where you want to go and then mm-hmm. you just go there and you do what you like doing. You have to go through certain channels. You have to jump through certain hoops. And the one advantage I had was that I did my residency already. So I was eligible to apply for certain fellowships, those that are not ACGME accredited. Research is one of them. Some other fellowships are also eligible for that. The same advantage I had was also a disadvantage because the fact that I did residency and I worked in Lebanon means that more time has, has elapsed since the time I graduated medical school. Mm-hmm. So when you apply to a residency program, they always ask you, what year did you graduate medical school? And mm-hmm. for me, it sounded like I graduated six years ago. So <laughs> it made me less appealing. But the fact that I did residency made me somewhat more appealing for some programs. Not right. everybody not, likes to see that. Yeah. So I decided to go into research first. And I was in talks with the Department of Outcomes Research at the Cleveland Clinic, which is a, a major force of research in the U.S. and internationally. And I was lucky enough to get a position there as a fellow for two years. And that's their formal fellowship training. So based on that, we made the move to the U.S. And during my second year, I started considering applying to residency programs. Okay. And it was still very difficult. And, and residents will tell you, if you're applying for a residency position, you need to be recently graduated. You need to be not internationally graduated from an international medical school. Right. And research doesn't really count that much unless a department is interested specifically in residents who can do research. Applying for fellowships, though, if you have a good CV with some publications, that's always um, an attractive thing. Mm -hmm. So it it took a lot of effort and uh, it took a lot of uh, applications. And you start applying randomly because being at such a disadvantage from the get-go, you can't be picky where you apply. And where an American graduate gets, say, 10 or 20 or 30 interviews as an international graduate if you get anything close to five interviews you're the king of the world Hmm. and while this was happening i was also fortunate to get accepted to a position as a neuroanesthesia fellow at the cleveland clinic which was great for me because this is clinical hands-on experience while research was not clinical hands-on and applying for residencies you tell them i graduated six seven eight years ago but then i recently had clinical hands-on experience as a neuroanesthesia fellow. So I I believe that that really enhanced my chances to get accepted to a residency program. And I ended up with two interviews for the entire season. And 
the one of them that worked was uh, Detroit Medical Center, and uh, I've been grateful ever since. Excellent. So during this time when you're you're doing these research fellowships, well, the first research fellowship and then the neuro anesthesia fellowship. What mm -hmm. was your wife doing during this time? Was uh, was she also working as a nurse? So this is the other part of not anticipating every problem that would come up. In our minds, when we were in Lebanon, we were thinking the U.S. is in such demand for nurses, especially critically uh, trained nurses. Mm -hmm. Somebody with experience at an American center, we thought that she would find a job in a second. What turned out to be was that me coming in on a visa, she had to be on my visa. Mm. So she was on what we call a spouse visa, which does not allow her to generate income. Wow. So she ended up actually not being able to work. Wow. And we've been here since 2014, and it's been five years, and she hasn't worked. Oh, my gosh. This is probably the most frustrating thing we've had to go through. Wow. Because she needed to apply separately and get her own visa. And you'd think that once she's here, it becomes easier. In fact, it becomes harder because some employers, the very few that do this, are actually used to doing it for nurses who are foreign trained but who are living abroad. Mm -hmm. And they have sort of a process in place where they would bring these nurses in on a job offer. She was already living here, and for some reason that just threw everybody off, and they, huh. and we couldn't, we just couldn't get her a job. Wow. And so, at what point in the process did she realize that she would not be able to be employed? Was that after you moved here? You go through a period of denial where you keep trying and you keep trying. She had, for nurses, there's uh, there's an exam called the NCLEX. Mm-hmm which is basically a qualifying exam that would allow you to apply for a nursing license in a state. She did that while we were still back at home, and she passed it. And then she got a license to practice in New York by default because that's where she did. That's how the application went. We moved to Ohio, and she, she got a license to work in Ohio because you can transfer. Mm -hmm. But then we couldn't get our job in Ohio. Wow. So... You literally had moved here and you were doing your work before she even realized that she was not going to be able to be employed. Yes. Yes. Wow. Oh. She actually ended up getting another license in Florida because one of my residency uh, options was in Florida and still. So she, she held licenses in, in at least three states, but she couldn't use it, use them for anything. Because of the visa. Because of the visa issue. And wow. and a visa application and a job application for somebody who's international takes a very long time. Yeah. You keep doing it, keep trying. So we did that for two years. And then, you know, eventually you'd say, this is a lot of money that I'm spending that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked to senators, we talked to program directors and nursing coordinators and nursing directors, and none of that helped. Wow. Finally, when we when we lost hope, basically, she got a job offer from Florida, and that was in December of 2016. Okay. The paperwork started back then, and it's still not over. Oh my god! We are in March of 2019. Oh my gosh! It's it's frustrating to say the least. So wow. And I feel with every international graduate and even U.S. graduates, sometimes your circumstances are way beyond you. And yeah. you just have to power through. It's not easy being away from home and not having the social support system around you. Yeah. And I know you mentioned, you know, the transition and, and the, the current environment, even the residency system here doesn't, is not conducive to like great, thriving, emotional 
emotionally fulfilling relationships and a broad support network, especially for somebody who's coming in from abroad. So what was that experience like for you, you know, coming here, not having a lot of relationships and a lot of people to rely on? How did you and your wife build a life that was, you know, one that you were going to be happy with? Well, I can tell you it wasn't easy. Yeah. We were lucky that when we moved to Ohio, there was a community of uh, Lebanese people there already. We didn't know any of them at the time. So you start going to certain events, you start meeting some people and you, you start, you know, word of mouth, you friends of friends, and you have to be kind of daring and outgoing and mm-hmm. you have to actually seek out these relationships. Right. Because sitting by yourself in an apartment will never help. Right. That's definitely true. <laughs> and, and being away from family, you have to make your own family, so to speak, uh, here. And, you know, being on a, on a research or a resident salary, you can't really expand your own family much. You can't really start family planning mm-hmm. until you start making a real income. We tried to seek out a lot of people. We tried to meet anybody and everybody whom we, we thought would be a good friend. We were lucky enough to meet a lot of people from a Lebanese background. Uh, we met a lot of um, my co-fellows, my co-residents. We have such great friends. A lot of the people in my same shoes, so people who are international who came in trying to do the same thing. And you sort of develop bonds with these people mm-hmm. because of your situation. We went to each and every graduation ceremony that we were invited to. All the resident activities in the hospital. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic had a nice resident spouse association, which my wife was part of. And, nice. and you know, these little events sort of help. Yeah. It's never the same as being at home with your own family, but it's right. it certainly helps. And it's it's something that that is a good addition to your life as somebody who's trying to make it back from zero. Yeah. What would you say is the most challenging thing that you've experienced as, as part of this transition, whether it be... Clinically, professionally, personally, you know, what would you say has been the toughest? If I think back to what I've done so far, after finishing college, I completed my medical school in Lebanon. So that's four years. Mm -hmm. I did anesthesia residency, which is another four years. I worked as a junior attending for two years. So this wasn't exactly my dream job, but it was something. So that's 10. Then I did two years of research training. Mm-hmm. That's 12. Mm-hmm. Almost a year of neuroanesthesia, 13. And now I'm doing four years of anesthesia residency again. So that's a total of about 17 years of being either in a startup position or a resident position or a trainee position. Right. With whatever it means in terms of income, in terms of status, in terms of stability, uh, both financial and mental stability. Because you always look at your surroundings and you're in the lowest ranks you can imagine. And that went on for, is going on for 17 years. Right. <laughs> where my friends from college who graduated 17 years ago, or should, we should say 15 years ago, are already in positions. They already work in companies. They already make their income. They have their families. Yeah. Even though I know exactly why I'm doing this, I can see my, my goal. I know where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. I know that it's worth it. But being in that phase for such a long time and feeling that you can't really do much with what you have. You just have to make the best of it. Yeah. That was probably the toughest part of all of this. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And I greatly admire your vision for that and also your perseverance to be at PGY 117 <laughs> and still going strong. I'm, I'm grateful that I've, I've been able to, uh, to do this. And, and I couldn't have done this on my own. 
so many people along the way have been supportive and helpful, starting from my wife and all the way to my immediate family, my extended family, my friends, my relatives, Mm. my co-residents and co-fellows and my superiors. You have to have a social support system every step of the way in order to be able to make it. Nobody can do everything on their own. So I am grateful to each and every person. And I won't be able to name everybody because there's so many. Cool. Well, we'll make sure and send them uh, the link to this podcast. And I'm sure they'll very much appreciate hearing from you. So what is, you know, as you're looking at, you know, your ambition for the future, what is your goal for vocation? And what, how do you envision your, whenever you sort of reach the, whatever you really want to do as far as what your practice is going to look like? What, what do you envision that looking like? I have a few ideas of that might look like. And this vision keeps changing and getting reformed along the way. Because thinking back to the time when I started my research fellowship, I didn't know if I was going to make it into a residency. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I was thinking year to year, saying, well, what do I have so far? I have a residency from Lebanon. I can go back and be an attending again there. Now that I have this research, I can do some more research here. I can do something like that, mm-hmm. uh, say, for a pharmaceutical company or a mm-hmm. medical device company, combining my background with my research uh, experience. Then I got into neuroanesthesia, and then I started thinking, well, maybe this is an option. I can always do this here if, a, um, if I can get a license in a state, or I can go back and become a neuroanesthesiologist and work there. Then I got into residency, and now I'm thinking, well, now I have the option of being board certified, working here as a general anesthesiologist, or I can combine that with my research, or I can do consulting work for medical device companies or pharmaceuticals. So this, this vision is kind of evolving as I go through these stages. Yeah. And at this point, I am a little over two years away from actually getting a formal residency certification. I become yeah. board certified. So yeah. thinking towards there, I have to decide whether I want to go for another fellowship, say an ACGME accredited fellowship, or do I want to start working as an attending and start making some real income for a change? Right. Or do I still want to pursue my research and then go academic path? Or should I go into the industry and do something there? Or should I combine those? Do I want to live in the U.S. primarily or in Lebanon or a mixture of both? It's um, With all the time that has passed, I can't really decide what the best move is. But I'm working on all of those aspects. And, and hopefully by the time I finish... I would have a better idea of what kind of life I would, I would like to have. Makes sense. Well, Al, I really appreciate your time here this evening. I just got two more quick questions for you and then we'll let you go. I, I appreciate you carving out. It's a, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for, for the opportunity. Uh, the, the first thing I want to ask is, I'm sure there's people in this audience who are thinking about, so you, you took a risk, right? You, I did. You, you were established, you and your wife were both working. And you had this idea that you wanted to come to the States and work your way up from the bottom again after having just done that. And and doing it across international borders has been very challenging, but it sounds like also very rewarding. For somebody else out there who's thinking about similarly doing a an international uh, venture like yours, perhaps for additional training or some kind of medical mission or something like that, what kind of advice would you give to somebody in that kind of place? I would give them the same advice I would give anybody who's considering medicine to start with. If this is something you would love to do, then go ahead and do it. Because medicine in general is such a long-term commitment, mm-hmm. regardless of your background or your target job. 
it's not just you who's in it. It's you, it's your spouse, it's your significant other, it's your loved ones, it's your family, uh, your circle of friends. This ripples out and it impacts so many people beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you don't really love what you're doing, at some point you will feel like this is not worth it and you would quit. Right. And you are presented with many opportunities to quit along the way. And every resident knows this. Everybody will tell you, I could have quit so many times so far. And some some people do, and not because they're weak. They just do because they find that other opportunities are better for them, which is something I respect. It's not easy to quit something that you're so invested in. Mm-hmm. But if it's something you're planning to stick to and persevere with, you really have to like it. So don't do it because becoming a doctor means I get a better pay. Well, you get better pay, but you get higher taxes and you have more expenditure. And there's there's a lot of positives and negatives to everything you decide. But if you really like what you're doing and if you have a clear vision of what you want to do and it works out within your realm, so you and everybody else around you, then absolutely go for it. If it doesn't, just don't do it for the wrong reasons. And everybody has their own reasons and, and I'm sure Everybody has to overcome their own hurdles to, to get through this. Yeah. Cool. Well, in closing, I want to ask you one final question. And you are someone who has overcome a lot of difficulty and put in a lot of hard work and extraordinary amounts of perseverance. I'd love to hear a brief story of a time when you have considered all the time that you've put in and all of the expense, emotional and financial and relational. And you, you know, considering what you had done, you were pleased with all of the hard work and in that moment you thought that you know what all these sacrifices and everything that i've done it's all been worth it that will take a little bit to answer so first off i want to say anybody who decided to become a physician or uh, an engineer or uh, whatever job that takes so long and takes a lot of effort takes a lot of time to finish that's already somebody who's who's sacrificing a lot Mm -hmm. even if everything else is available even if they come from a wealthy family and they didn't have to go through anything, uh, they're already sacrificing a lot. The time that they spend into this is invaluable. And being a physician specifically, I can speak to that just because I'm in the within this realm. Being a physician is already a big sacrifice. It doesn't matter what kind of specialty you go into. Add, add to that, if you come from a financially less privileged background, then it's an extra layer of work because you have to build your entire reputation from the ground up. I add to that the fact that I come from internationally. I had to leave my country, leave my family, sacrifice all of those, and then start from from zero again. There's always sacrifices, and everybody has their own sacrifices. I will not belittle any of the sacrifices anybody else has made because I know this is not easy. And for physicians, they go through the most rigorous training. They go through the most gruesome programs, basically, in the, on earth to become physicians. And everybody else has their own version of this. It's not just physicians. So no matter what kind of achievements you have, you should feel proud that you're actually where you are. Because it took a lot for you to get there. So from the beginning, I would say everybody should be proud of everything they're doing. Because they're doing something that not everybody can do. In my case, my journey has been filled with moments of pride over achievements I've made, but there's always this bittersweet feeling because your pride is tinged with some guilt. And you always think that, well, what if I stayed back home and stayed with my family? Wouldn't they have been happier? Or you say, what if I didn't do this and I had a, another job and I didn't have to pursue this whole thing again? 
wouldn't my spouse and I be happier and, and a little more relaxed? You always think about the goods and the bads of, of everything you're doing, mm-hmm. but that doesn't take away from the achievements you're achieving. Yeah. I always feel like it's worth it when I call my family. So I call my family on Sundays, basically, once a week through the magic of the internet. Yeah. And I haven't seen them since I moved to the U.S. So it's been five years. It always feels good when you tell them that I've just submitted, uh, say, a paper somewhere and got accepted, or I'm, I'm invited to a conference and I'm presenting something there. You always get this feeling that they're proud of you and you're doing something you set out to do and you're actually achieving it. At the same time, you feel bad because you're missing out on so many other important life events. Mm-hmm. You get family uh, health issues. You get uh, people getting married, people passing away, and, and you can't be there for them. So yeah. it's always important to keep your mind in the clear that you're doing this for a reason. And if you think it's worth it, you should go for it. Yeah. One of my proudest moments lately was uh, something that I did through my research on my uh, years at the Cleveland Clinic. Throughout my last year or so, I was working on book chapters, two book chapters and, and two books. And that process takes a while. So a couple of months ago, the books were published. And I was sent my complimentary copies of those books. So I was just sitting in my living room. I opened the box and there's those two books. Mm-hmm. And I just go through the author list and my name is there. It always mm-hmm. gives you that feeling of, wow, I just did something you know, important. Yeah. And um, your life as somebody who's doing residency and doing research on your own time and you're doing you go into conferences and you're sacrificing vacation days to go there it's always nice when you see your product Mm -hmm. in your hand or when you look at an article and then your name is there somebody can search for it and they can find you so i'm sitting there i'm just admiring my books basically (laughs) and uh my wife walks in and she must have seen the look on my face she must have she knew that i was waiting for those for a while now yeah Uh, they technically they took three years to be published so she uh, she came in and she said, you know, I'm proud of you for doing this. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of you that you're actually achieving things you're working so hard to achieve. And mm-hmm. in an instant, it just made me feel a whole new level of, you know, this is worth it. Yeah, I am. It's always good to feel appreciated. Mm-hmm. And why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I want a better life for me and for my wife. So the fact that she's on board, the fact that she understands the sacrifices and she's being so supportive, even though we're going against all sorts of comfort that we can find. So I don't have to be a resident forever. I don't have to do 17 years of this kind of work to to have a good life. I could always go back and start working as an attending. But no, we're sticking through, we're going through it. And it's good that she appreciates it. It's good that she understands the meaning of the achievements. It, It always makes it more worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that, and I appreciate your spirit of perseverance. It's contagious. So if Thank anybody's you. out there listening and thinking, oh, my gosh, I want to just throw in the towel. <laughs> you know, you've been in training for a long time or switched programs or whatever. Um, that you, you're a great example, while of um, Thank you. You know, what it means to stick it out and see it through. And I, I'm really, uh, really pleased to have met you, and I really appreciate you joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and I really hope this helps somebody or opens their eyes to what else is there? You can always just get sucked into your own problems and you, you think that you're having the worst life, no matter what stage of life you're in. And then you listen to what other people go through. And sometimes it gives you inspiration. Sometimes it gives you hope. My, my biggest achievement today would be if somebody listens to the story and says, well, you know what? I can do it too.
Hmm. And and I really think a lot of people can do a lot more than they think. It's just sometimes you have to go through bad times to get to the good times. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.